Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Kevin Drewley, Associate Editor at Safety and Health. With me, as always, are fellow Associate Editors, Alan Ferguson and Barry Bettino. We welcome you to our June 2023 episode, number 40 in podcast history. And while that tally might suggest we now are over the hill, we here at On the Safe Side feel as hip and vibrant as ever. Thank you. We also say thank you for spending some time with us today. June marks National Safety Month, and the Council is offering a variety of resources to promote workplace safety at nsc.org slash nsm. The three of us have recorded a special National Safety Month-themed episode of this podcast featuring David Consider, Senior Workplace Safety Consultant at the National Safety Council. Please check that out at safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash podcasts. We know many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear about it for the My Story feature in our magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. You can view past My Story entries and catch up on all the news from around the safety world on our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's episode, Alan will take us on a deep dive into his feature story on eye and face protection, exploring when it is necessary and what to know about fit and comfort, among other topics. For our monthly Five Questions With interview segment, we will be joined by Tara Kyle of Michigan OSHA to discuss the importance of safety walkarounds, a topic that also is covered in the June issue of the magazine. And the three of us, as always, will also share lessons we learned this month in our What Did We Learn segment. Is everybody ready? Here we go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, We examine a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In our June issue, Alan writes about eye and face protection. Why is it so important, you may ask? Well, according to NIOSH, eye injuries impact thousands of workers every single workday. Alan, will you walk over to the deep end of your community pool right next to that no diving sign, of course, and jump into this story for us? Well, thank you so much for that introduction, Barry. Yes, as you mentioned, every day around 2,000 workers suffer an eye injury severe enough to require medical treatment, and that's uh, according to NIOSH. And and despite this, a lack of appropriate eye or face protection has made OSHA's top 10 list of most frequent citations in each of the last five fiscal years. And in this latest list, there were about 1,600 violations of 1926.102, and pretty much all of those violations were for 1926.102A1. So that's the basics, you know, failure to protect employees from hazards to the eye or face. And now those hazards can include flying particles, molten metal, liquid chemicals, including acid or caustic liquids, uh, chemical gases or vapors, and, and light radiation. And to find out which hazards are in the workplace, employers are required to conduct an assessment to see if personal protective equipment is needed and what kind of PPE. Now, OSHA requires that PPE if hazards are present or likely to be present. And Appendix B to 1910 Subpart I has non-mandatory guidelines on how to conduct such an assessment. If those potential hazards include flying objects, workers must have side protection. Detachable side protectors such as clip-on or slide-on side shields are acceptable if they meet all other regulatory requirements. Why is it important to document that hazard assessment? So I had a, a source for another story. A former OSHA inspector said this best. The 11th command with OSHA is, if it's not in writing, it never happened. So always keep that in mind. In this case, the documentation of a hazard assessment is required by OSHA with a written certification that, quote, 
identifies the workplace evaluated, the name of the person certifying that the evaluation has been performed, and the date or dates of the hazard assessment. And the aforementioned David Consider, a senior safety consultant here at the National Safety Council, said it's important that safety professionals or employers show their work on how they arrived at a decision on which PPE to use. For example, if they reviewed the safety data sheet, contacted the manufacturer, hired a consultant, asked a third party to review and or conducted their own research, they need to document the process which led to that decision, he said. You can't simply tell an ocean inspector that you reviewed the SDS. Uh, you must show how you made that assessment. And Alan, what are some reasons why people may not wear their IR face protection in the workplace? The first answer is probably not surprising here. It's fit issues. If the PPE doesn't fit well, people are probably not going to use it or want to use it. And, and some other reasons are fogging and damage, such as scratches. Um, the good news is, as I write in the story, is that many new safety glasses or goggles are fog and scratch resistant. In the most recent ANSI IC Z87.1 standard, which was published in 2020, testing performance and marking criteria for anti-fog lenses were among the changes included. As far as fit issues, the bridge of the nose and the ears are some of the areas that can experience the most discomfort, said one source. So asking workers for feedback can help employers stay ahead of those issues. Uh, and if you wear prescription eyewear, OSHA requires your employer to provide eye protection that incorporates the prescription in its design or wear eye protection that can be worn over the prescription lenses without disturbing the proper position of the prescription lenses or the protective lenses. And fortunately, prescription safety eyewear is pretty standard nowadays and even more attractive than in the past, according to one source. Some other key points in the story, um, employees need to be trained so they know why they need to wear eye or face PPE. That training also should include the potential hazards and the consequences of not wearing PPE, Consider said. And he added that it might take a little bit of time to get everybody on board. Employers also need to set a good example by ensuring all managers and visitors wear proper PPE when on a job site. And, and finally, employers should reassess their eye and face protection periodically to see if it's still the right choice or if there's a change needed. And this is a quote, on any job site, you find that procedures change, materials change, amount of materials change, new employees are brought to the job and or the number of employees doing the task is reduced, considered said. All of these add changes to the work and may or may not warrant a change in the level or type of PPE. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for your work on this story. There's plenty more information for our listeners on this story in the online version and in the print magazine as well this month. To read more about all the news from around the safety world and, of course, Alan's feature on eye and face protection, please check out the June issue of Safety and Health Magazine, where you can visit us at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So, what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. You can share your safety origin story by sending a submission to safehealth at nsc.org. Having extra sets of eyes on safety in the workplace is a plus for safety professionals. For many, that comes in the form of safety walkarounds, which our guest on this month's podcast calls, quote, the prevention side of incidents, unquote. Joining us to talk about the ins and outs of safety walkarounds is Tara Kyle, the director of Michigan OSHA's Consultation, Education, and Training Division. Tara, we're glad to have you join us on the safe side. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. 
Well, Tara, where we wanted to start with you today is how would you describe what a safety walkaround is for our audience and what can it accomplish? You kind of stole my thunder there in the beginning. This is this is a company's opportunity to be on the prevention side of accidents. Uh, really a company's chance to take uh, time to find where potential incidents might occur and find those problems, be proactive before something happens. And if you don't mind, I'm going to share a story. Oftentimes, as safety professionals, we don't get to see the impact of what we do on the prevention side of safety. We had one of our consultants out on a safety walk around. It was on a construction site, and there was an excavation, people in a a poorly sloped excavation. And we all know the hazards around that, very serious hazards. And, and one of the first things he did is, is got the people out of the excavation. Like, let's get out and have the conversation. And when he did that, he started talking to them and asked them questions and trying to explain the hazard that they were in. And while they were standing there, that excavation collapsed. And it was a real eye-opener. He had been in safety for a long time. A lot of us have. And he hadn't seen, again, that, that, that time to understand why what we do is so important. And that's those walk-arounds. It's looking for those opportunities to keep somebody from being hurt in the future. So that's why I think that they're so important. In our safety and health story this month, you and others mentioned that safety walk-arounds don't just belong to safety pros. Who else should be involved? Safety professionals oftentimes use their training, their experience to look for violations. They're, they're out looking for specific things. And that's okay. That's what a lot of us get paid to do. But by bringing in an accountant or a janitor or somebody who's not familiar with that, that machinery or that process or task, it really opens up to an extra set of eyes. It gives opportunity to uh, ask questions and and about a, a process that maybe the the person completing that task or the safety professional has gotten normalized to the hazards there. Where if you bring somebody that's never seen that process, they're going to ask questions uh, that we wouldn't think to ask, and and that is invaluable. So bringing people in from all points of your uh, process, again, from office staff to janitorial staff or someone from a completely different line or different process brings that chance for those questions that we can't even begin to think about as safety professionals. So when documenting hazards on a walk around, how should you do it? And are there any concerns about walking around with a camera and a clipboard? I don't see that, honestly, as a concern with a, a really good safety culture, a mature safety culture that's used to walk-arounds and, and has a process. And they know that there's monthly or weekly walk-arounds with CEOs and a group of people. But I think that that can be a little bit dangerous for a company that's new to a walk-around process when you know three, four, five people walk into your work area and they're carrying clipboards and they've got a camera and a pen and it can become very overwhelming where if we go out on these job sites and we start walk around processes with with our PPE and a smile, we're going to get better questions answered. We're going to get more openness from the staff on what they're doing and maybe even complaints they've always had or issues they've always had with this process. And so I I like cameras on on walk rounds. I like having that photographic documentation. I'm a I'm a fan of checklists. I use checklists all over my life, but I think that there's a time and a place. And with that uh, immature safety culture, it, it is maybe not the time and place. By all means, get back to your office and make notes. Try to remember all the things someone said. You don't want to lose track of that. 
but maybe the first year or six months of your walk around um, procedures don't overwhelm in that way. I think that you can be a little bit more casual there. Tara, we want to put you in the mindset now of after a walk around. Um, how important is the follow-up process with workers and what should that look like? Follow-up is really about abatement. So when we talk about a, a, a safety walk around, I mentioned that prevention side of safety. We can only prevent those accidents if we abate or eliminate those hazards. And so taking the time to follow up to make sure that abatement occurs is important for what we're all here for, for the safety of employees. It's it's vitally important. When you've identified a hazard, you have to take care of it for all the legal OSHA reasons and because it's the right thing to do. But that follow-up piece is important, not just in getting the abatement, but in communicating to your employees. Some of that abatement or some of that follow-up may take years. If it's a large expenditure, if it's a process change, making sure your employees know it's still on the list. Maybe you can't change pieces. Let them know that and let them know why. Uh, The quick fixes, say there's a table that you could adjust the height of for ergonomics, and it took 30 minutes. It took 10 minutes. A different PPE that helps better or fits better or is more comfortable. Make sure to celebrate those little ones too. Let them know that these safety walk-arounds aren't just a time to talk about fishing, although that's okay too. It's okay to be casual with your employees and and make it personal in that way. This is an opportunity to um, let your employees know safety is important. It gets their involvement in it and shows that that engagement of leadership. So follow up however you do that, whether it's literally a handwritten list in the break room, or maybe you have a company email or a company newsletter. These are the things that we took care of this month. These are the things that are still outstanding from last month. It will go miles and miles for a company to have that, to continually improve that safety culture. As we close up with you, Tara, what resources can you recommend for our listeners who want to learn more about safety walkarounds? I would say that for a safety professional that's going to go and do walkarounds, make sure that you do some education on the front end. Get a hold of the manual for that piece of equipment. Oftentimes manuals have inspection checklists. Make yourself aware of those things. Read the procedures that your company may already have published for that process. Uh, take that time to pre-educate yourself so you know what questions to ask. And if if you're not finding those, those resources right in your facility, there's good things out there. MyOSHA, we offer fact sheets that are across the industries, lots of different topics that can give you a quick guide into that uh, industry or that task. OSHA has their quick takes. I was on the NSC website this morning. You guys have some really cool publications and things out there that can help. So don't feel blocked because you're unaware of that process or, or haven't done a safety walk around in this type of industry before. There are so many resources out there. Reach out to consultants in your area. Talk to your mechanics. Your mechanics are fixing stuff, right? So there's people out there that can help you find that. Your old OSHA logs to see where the injuries were, right? If you're new to a company and identify, okay, we've had hand injuries in that process every year for the last five years. Well, that's something I need to walk, look at, walk around, see, ask questions about. So the resources are absolutely endless if, if you're willing to take the time to learn and prepare yourself for these things. 
Well, Tara, we certainly thank you for sharing your expertise on this topic this month with us on The Safe Side. We appreciate you being our guest on the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate being here and I appreciate what you guys do for the industry. As we approach the end of this episode, it's about that time to discuss what we've learned in the past month, whether on the job or off. To get things started, I've learned that even news with seemingly zero ties to occupational safety and health indeed can be traced back with a bit of digging. Um, A friend recently texted a link to a story telling of the superstition of LA Dodgers outfielder Mookie Betts, who chose not to stay in the team hotel during a May trip to face the Milwaukee Brewers. Why? Well, the team was booked at Milwaukee's Fister Hotel, which has a history of purportedly being haunted. Although Betts had stayed there during previous road trips, he opted out this time, instead renting an Airbnb property. Whereas fans of urban legend may hear the name Fister and immediately associate the whole haunted hotel thing, I'm sure at least some in our audience, or maybe it's just me, can tell you why it's relevant to occupational safety, or at least NSC. The Fister actually was the host venue for the very first NSC Congress and Expo, held from September 30th to October 5th, 1912. Congress returned to the good land in 1920, but was held elsewhere. In closing, and uh, getting a little more solemn, but also sticking with the the fusion of the worker safety and sporting spheres, this is our first recording since Patrick Kappas passed away at the age of 56. Uh, Patrick served as Deputy Director of OSHA's Directorate of Enforcement Programs um, as part of his advancement through a long career with the agency, and certainly has been a a friend to safety and health for years. He Many will know him, and I believe since 2011 as... uh, the presenter of, you mentioned the top 10, not only this episode, but so many, but Patrick, as you know, at Congress was always front and center with that data and ready to present it to everyone and to analyze it in Q&A during the session and in side sessions after. So um, just want to send our condolences to the family and to OSHA. I know the three of us always enjoyed seeing Patrick and I mentioned sports and occupational safety, that he was a big sports fan. Um, I think we had a lot of off-the-record talks with him um, about sports. In 2018, I know Congress was in Houston and the Red Sox just had defeated the the Astros in a hard-fought ALCS, but I think Allen was in a session where Patrick did a little bit of, you know, just little banter about, yeah, that's a tough club and things like that before getting into OSHA current activities. With that, Allen, uh, what did you learn this month? Yeah, I wanted to echo those condolences as well. And also, it, I guess, somewhat... F- fitting that um, I was going to talk about an OSHA story or OSHA news. They've launched a uh, recently launched a national emphasis program on preventing falls in all industries. And so falls to a lower level have accounted for about 13% of the roughly 40,000 workplace fatalities since 2014. And they've also made, they also made about 13% of the uh, more than 5,000 fatalities in 2021. And that's the most recent data available. And in construction uh, falls to a lower level have accounted for about 32% of the more than 7,000 fatalities in the industry since 2014. So obviously, you know, and as we all know, speaking of OSHA top 10, once again, Fall Protection General Requirements 1926.501 has been OSHA's most frequently cited standard for 12 consecutive years. And in this past fiscal year, in 2022, uh, there was about 5,260 violations. And that was more than double the the next um, most cited standard hazard communication, which was 2,424. Barry, what about you? 
Well, Alan, I learned about nightlights, but not the way we might think about nightlight. This is a story uh, that I wrote for Safety and Health on the website about shift workers, uh, specifically uh, night shift nurses. And what this study did is these researchers from McGill University in Canada, they had two groups of nurses who one of those groups, they um, exposed those nurses to 40 minutes of bright light from a portable light box before a night shift. And what they found is between that group and the control group, the group that got the bright light exposure, it improved their sleep, it lessened their fatigue, and it led to fewer errors on the job. Now, how many errors? What the researchers said is the group that did get the bright light exposure, they saw a 67% reduction in on-the-job errors. And in contrast, the control group, it only showed a 5% reduction. Now, the researchers said also this may not just have applications in the medical field. This may be something that other industries can explore as well. So certainly an interesting story that uh, you can check out on safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Well, thank you guys as always. And now it's our listeners' turn. Is there something important that you learned this month? Please share it with us via email at safehealth.nsc.org. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable and we appreciate you spending some of it with us. If you'd like to share some feedback, please email us at safehealth.nsc.org. We'd also appreciate you rating, reviewing, or spreading the word about this podcast. To find stories such as my feature on eye and face protection and all the latest news from around the safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Masson. Thank you so much, Steve. And a big thank you to all of our NSC colleagues behind the scene who make this podcast go. Ryan Gruntish, Amy Bellinger, Debbie Meyer, Paul Walensky, Karen Lord, Melissa Rominski, and Jennifer Yario. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side. Mm -hmm.